Wow, we. Isn't it great to be together? What a joy and a privilege. Kevin, thank you. Appreciate you. And the band, aren't they always just awesome? I'm telling you. Week by week, we are so encouraged and blessed with what the Lord is doing in our midst. I, uh, first, as we're kind of kicking off today, I just got to thank you for all the encouragement you've been giving to me and to my family since this diagnosis a few weeks ago. And I'm just thankful the cards, the sweet, sweet cards and emails and notes and Great scripture verses of encouragement and love and just loving up on my family. And so I'm really thankful and I have to tell you that we just got back from children's camp this past Wednesday night. Kids, did y'all have a great time at children's camp? Did y'all? Yeah, it's good. I want to I just need to tell you, this is one of the greatest things that we do. Uh, the the leadership, the teaching, the focus, the joy, the fun, all of the things coming together. You really need to commend Wendy and Casey and all those workers. And giving them a hand right now wouldn't be a bad thing. They're just really, really... I, I don't know how they do it. They've got to be exhausted. I know Steve's exhausted too and the youth and uh, saw them working so well. And I love going to preach at children's camp. I, I don't know... If you've seen any video footage from it or anything, but they are, the children are so attentive. Uh, our times that we meet at night are sometimes at seven and sometimes as late as eight fifteen. And those, those children are focused. They have notebooks. They have their Bibles. They're taking notes. And these are, what grade does it start at? What's the youngest that's there at night? Third through sixth grade. And they are focused. I'm so proud. And uh, it was great. So, children's camp workers, I am just thanking God for you. How wonderful. I do want to mention, we still have need for host homes for Camp USA. And I want to ask you to stop by if there's any possibility for you helping us out. We're going to, you'll be getting an email about that pretty quick. And also there's a table out back. And I know Prudence would love to explain what is needed for that. So if you could stop by, that would be really Good and and I just love y'all and I count it such a joy to have this time to be with you. So let's jump in the Lord's Word together and immerse ourselves. The topic today is freedom. It's a great time to talk about it. Uh, freedom is a funny thing because it is something so glorious, yet something that can be easily misused. And there are two kinds of freedom. One is political. And, and physical, and, and one is spiritual, and both of them are very important. And today I'm going to be talking in relation to both the wonder and joy of political freedom that you and I are enjoying in the United States that came to us at great cost, at great sacrifice. And I thank God for, I was saying in Sunday school this morning, we're all gathered up in Sunday school today. Our Bibles are open. We're talking about the gospel and enjoying the comforts of all the things we have. And nobody's going to come in and mess with that. And there's not a raid and there's not any pressure. Yeah, we get some kind of pushback occasionally uh, in our our nation right now, but it's nothing like what's going on in other parts of the world. And I just thank God for it. And I think we need to remember that. Let me tell you what I would love for you to do tomorrow. 
here's what I would love for you to do. Sit down with your family tomorrow and, as always, read the Scriptures together, but read the Declaration of Independence all the way through. Do that as a family. Because what's happening is we're moving forward into generations that don't quite grasp or embrace or understand how wonderful it is to be where we are. And so it's good to look back, read the Declaration of Independence and kind of see where we were. And especially pay attention to all the grievances that are listed in the Declaration of why our forefathers said, hey, we've got to make a break with this uh, motherland, and this is why we think we need to make that break. It's a great read. I did that last night, just thinking about it, and it really encouraged me. And so, uh, spend that little time tomorrow on Independence Day, understanding what it is we're really celebrating. But also understand that freedom has a great responsibility, and that's why I picked the text that I did. So join me in Galatians 5, and in Galatians 5... We're going to talk about freedom, and we're going to see, just real quick, a couple of parallels, and then I'm going to focus primarily on the meaning of spiritual freedom and and how we use it. I want to begin on number one, the very first slide, the first blank, is freedom's purpose. Now, uh, can anybody tell me, with a quick perusal here, the name of this document uh, that these words are taken from? Y'all look at it real quick, take a minute. And then if you know what it's from, call it out to me. Who, what is it? So, oh, 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 I heard it in here. It's the Mayflower Compact. Mayflower Compact. All right? So, uh, everybody look right here. Raise your hand. You got it. This is great. Okay. One of our young people, this is wonderful. This is the Mayflower Compact. Now, what this does is it gives us insight into the the DNA of America. Now, my goal here is not to say that every bit of America's DNA is Christian. It's not. But the fundamental pieces of how our nation thought when it began is highly influenced by the way this document was written. And you kind of get it, Mayflower Compact, Mayflower, Pilgrims, And so this was the appeal that they gave to the king of how they were going to live together. So let's walk through it. In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France and Ireland King, defender of the faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do by these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves together as a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have under hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod the 11th of November in the year and reign of our sovereign Lord King James of England, France, and Ireland the 18th, and Scotland the 54th. 
the year of our Lord, 1620. So you see a little bit of the DNA. There are two characteristics I want to call your attention to. One is that part of their goal here was the practice of their own faith. They wanted a place where they could practice their beliefs. And the second is that they could propagate their beliefs. So they wanted a place where they could live out their faith and promote it, propagate it. So they wanted to start a colony. It was, in a sense, a church plant. And so they wanted to start this colony with this idea. Down toward the bottom, notice about five lines from the bottom, it says, we promise all due submission and obedience. This was not just a rebel bunch of people jumping on a boat and sailing across the ocean. They came with hearts of submission, knowing that God establishes governments and that governments are for the good of mankind and for their benefit. So if you study long on this document, you're going to find a couple of things. Take me to the next slide quickly, Peggy. Here we go. Next slide. The pursuit and practice of their faith. They were interested in kind of escaping some of the governmental religion that they had experienced in their homeland. Because the religion and the government were tied together and... That was not leaving freedom of conscience. They wanted to go to a place where they could freely and openly, by conscience, pursue and practice their own faith. And then they had in mind the next thing, the propagation of the gospel. They wanted to promote the Christian faith. And they said that that's, it's to that end that we're coming across here and have set up here. We want to promote the gospel. We want to propagate it. We want to carry this gospel out. So coming from that sort of DNA into the Declaration of Independence, you have people who want freedom. And they want in that freedom to work in matters of conscience to pursue their faith. And then many of those to propagate the gospel. By the time you get to 1776, it's very different than the Mayflower Compact. But you still have people who want the freedom to propagate the gospel openly, freely, which means to share, to evangelize, to communicate the truths of God to people. That's what they wanted to do. So in our DNA as a country, the practice of our faith and the propagation of our faith are there. Now, two of the challenges that come with freedom are, first... responsibility. If I'm free, that means I can do what I wish with my time, my gifts, my money and resources. I can do as I wish. So there's a degree of responsibility because there's no coercion, no forcing. Free. And the second thing that comes with it is the fact that inside that responsibility are sinful people. So when Paul addresses us in Galatians 5, he's talking spiritually. But his reference can easily be moved over into the political realm and spoken of. So let's jump in Galatians 5 for a moment. Speak just a little bit about the political realm and then move on into what I think Paul's after 
spiritually here. In Galatians 5, it says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. So if, let's take it politically for a minute. If this uh, Mayflower Compact uh, influencing our Declaration of Independence, influencing our Constitution, sets up a nation with freedoms... We do have a call to freedom that is political. Paul is not talking about that there, but in parallel, we really do have that. We have the freedom. We're called to freedom. It's wonderful here in the United States. But Paul says that a spiritual freedom has liabilities, and so political freedoms do too. So what's the liability? Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So what, what's the deal here? Well, here, here it is. It's real simple. And it's true in the political realm and in the spiritual realm. We're sinful. And therefore, we're selfish. And if in my selfish heart, I think that the goal of freedom is about me, I'm way off base already. Because if I think it's about me then it will be run by my flesh, my pride, my selfishness, and my own personal agendas, objectives, and desires. And so the same truth that applies to spiritual freedom that we're going to flesh out really well applies to political freedom. If you reside in the United States in the freedom that you have, and you interpret it as being about you and the satisfaction of your own selfish pursuits, that will wreck the nation that we have. It is already wrecking our nation. A great number of people believe that political freedom means you can do whatever you want And look out only after your own interests. But if you reflect on three documents important to the political freedom of the United States, the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, all of those were written for a corporate well-being so that the labor of the whole was always for the good. Of the whole. That was the design. And that governments are established among men by men for the common good. So if you are letting your political freedom be about your personal pursuits, then you are off track. Because your political freedom must have in its objective the common good of the whole. And I have found out sometimes the common good of the whole means the sacrifice at the individual level. Our freedoms were maintained by men and women who for the common good actually gave up their own personal freedoms. When World War II came, an untold number of young men 
lied about their age to do one thing. To protect the common freedom. They gave up their freedom to secure the freedom of others. Now, through the course of American history, there are lots of examples, but the ones I'm familiar with is I got to sit with Dallas Roberts, who is with the Lord now, and heard his story of many from our own community of Ball and Pineville who lied to the government for one reason. Sixteen-year-olds were willing to die to keep their homeland, the corporate big homeland, free from tyranny. So when Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that's very paralleling and transferable into the political realm so that you and I need to understand, if we want the common good, it will mean individual sacrifice. Now let's translate that over into the spiritual realm because the parallel is exact. If we want spiritual freedom for every human being on this earth, which Jesus seeks, then you and I will have to give up our individual agenda for a greater agenda, the global cause of Christ. So Paul says... There is a purpose in your freedom. It is what? Well, in verse 13 he says, For you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And remember the problem with that statement? When Jesus said, Here is the first and greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the proud Pharisees stepped up and said, Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gave him the one that he would most likely say wasn't his neighbor. And that he was called to evangelize those that he disliked the most. And so our freedoms in Christ and politically give you and I a very unique opportunity. In fact, I'm going to tell you my personal belief. This is not from the Bible. This is a Bardism. I believe that America had one purpose. To be the great sending station of the gospel to the world in its time. I believe that. We've had the richest resources and we have at one point had some of the greatest understanding of the gospel and ability to send. And I believe that's part of why America exists. To propagate the gospel just like the Mayflower folks said. So follow me now through some things that I think the church ought to be characterized by if we are people of freedom, of the kind of freedom I want to read to you about. Come with me real quick to John 8. And uh, Crystal, are you here? There you are, Crystal. 
This was kind of brewing around in my mind when we talked this morning. So uh, this kind of connects back to Sunday school. I love Sunday school and the, the opportunities for discussion that we have. John 8, verse 31. Join me there. The Lord's Word says, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall do what? What's it going to do? It's going to make you free. This is beautiful. This is the spiritual freedom that is spoken of in Galatians that we should not, um, we should not waste. We should, we should not squander. And the, the folks around there answered and said, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. That was a pretty lame answer, wasn't it? Because from Abraham's time to their time, they've been enslaved many times. <laughs> That's a really lame answer. And Jesus replied to them in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Here's the problem. My brothers and sisters, folks who are visiting today, uh, unbelievers, listen. The problem with humans is that we are slaves to sin. Sometime between our conception and uh, our adulthood, we literally, willfully embrace sin. As a nature, born with it, but as an activity, we choose it. And in the embracing of it, we actually become slaves to it. Jesus came to set us free from the bondage of sin. So that we would no longer be under the control and the sway of our sinful desires. So that that would no longer be master over us. Romans 6 talks about it. talks about the before you came to Christ, you gave the members of your body as slaves, as instruments to unrighteousness. And so you were, you were, you were in bondage to sin and to sin's ways and thoughts and deeds. And so Jesus says, I, I can make you free. And he says, a slave does not live in the house forever. In other words, if you are a slave to sin, God's going to punt you out of his house. <laughs> That's bad. And, but he says that the son lives forever. So if the son makes you free, then you're a member of the household and you abide forever. So this is salvation he's speaking of. He's speaking of the work he does on the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross, he breaks the power of sin and death and Satan, and he breaks it in such a way as to set you free. And when you put your trust in him by the power of the Holy Spirit, inviting and inciting you toward God, you are no longer a slave to sin. And that's why Paul says, since you're not a slave to sin anymore, and sin is not your master anymore, don't let your freedom turn into an opportunity of the flesh. So how does that look? Well, number two on the outline is freedom's posture. I have lived for 53 years. I was born in 1962 in the midst of social change. Was not noticing politics until probably about 69 when I was about seven years old. and All of the things that were going on in the nation and all of the stuff that was happening... And in the 70s and all the different administrations that have come and gone since that time. One of the things I've been watching is a growing dissatisfaction inside the Christian church with the state of our nation, which I believe there should be a growing dissatisfaction. But I think it's turned into an ugly posture. It only takes a few minutes 
on Facebook, which I don't have a Facebook account, but I do look at some other folks' accounts and scroll through. It only takes a few minutes to realize that the Christian presence on Facebook sounds somewhere between a crying baby and a temper tantrum. And it's ugly. And it's prideful and arrogant. And it does not... People say horrible things about elected officials in horrible statements and ugly ways and insinuations that are not in keeping with what the Bible actually says Christians ought to be like. Come with me for a moment to Romans. Now, listen to me. Listen really well as you turn to Romans. I'm not saying you shouldn't dissent. Can everybody do this to understand that I'm not saying that? I'm not, what I'm saying is, you need to look like Jesus in your descent. Firm and loving. Redemptive and settled. In Romans chapter 13, the Bible talks about a posture of believers before the government. It repeats that posture in 1 Peter 2, and we'll visit that after Romans. So, let's hit Romans. We're going to move around in our Bible a lot in the next five to ten minutes. So, so kind of, you know, if you got a little of that stuff that you can put on your fingers and make the pages turn faster, we're going to need that. Okay, here we are. Romans 13 says it very clearly in verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, a lot of folks say, well, Paul just didn't understand. Paul was writing this to those under the domination of a wicked emperor. So don't. Don't think that Paul doesn't understand. He probably knows better than most of us here. Some of you may have lived under, in another country, some kind of wicked domination. But he says, Subjection to the authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Wow. Nowhere does Paul ever encourage you to break God's word or law. In your submission. Ever. And we're given many biblical examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament of people refusing what happens in the government and either taking the consequences and dying or being liberated and freed. Everything from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Paul in prison. You have lots of examples of folks who will not submit themselves to any ordinance that is against God or His Word, but they do submit themselves to the ordinances that are not offensive to God and His Word. And I call this posture. Posture is an important thing, because in the early church, the posture of the Christians was a humble submission to all things that did not violate God's Word and human conscience under God's Word, and then a respectful disobedience in anything that contradicted conscience under God's Word. This is very important because I think we're really blowing our testimony in social media. I think we're really blowing it. And I think we're blowing it to a degree that the church is losing profound respect in social media, by how we're acting as Christians. I think everything that you and I ever post anywhere needs to be thought through. I've made mistakes in my posts. 
And I think we need to be really careful about what we're communicating and that at the forefront of all that we say is the good and glory of God and the gospel. So our screen just went out, but we'll fix that. All right. So freedom's posture. Come with me to First Peter 2. I'll say a word there, and then we're going to go through these next five more quickly, I hope. All right. First Peter 2. Interesting passage to study. Hebrews, James, Peter, John. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 13. You can always remember Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2.13. Kind of go together. 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What's he saying? He's saying that your attitude, your posture toward the king, toward the governing authorities, is able to silence those who hate the church. Because when the church looks like a bunch of rebels whining, crying, and pitching tantrums, it makes people able to say, why should y'all pay attention to the church? They sound like a bunch of two-year-olds who haven't had a nap. And so I think that's a legitimate complaint against us. And so I think we need to be very careful how we speak and what posture we have about government and its errors. Governments are Prone to error. They always have been. Third, number three, prayer. Freedom's prayer. You and I need to be engaged according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You can place there your hand or you can just note that we're there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul puts it this way. First of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, and petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are all in authority. This is beautiful. Here's what I believe. If Christians would pray two times as much as they complain, they would not have enough time to complain. I think we need to hush up in our talking to mankind about government until we have spoken up to God about it. And that we leave our prayer rooms after time with God with our dissent. And I believe dissent is good. But I believe it has to come out of prayers and petitions for all men. That means praying for both candidates no matter what your political affiliation is. Earnestly pray for them. I want you to notice that God is at work in this. Listen to what He says. He says in verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What is He talking about? He's saying, not only are you praying for them, you're praying for their salvation. I've actually listened to Christians who have prayed for God to kill and send to hell President Obama. I don't think that's here. I don't see it. To pray for the salvation of our political leaders, earnestly, contending for their souls, 
with the belief that that's what it means to love our neighbor is to pray for their salvation and do good to them. And so, third, fourth, praise. This is a funny one, but I'm going to share it with you. In Romans 13, 7, there is a passage that says, back there where we were just a minute ago, Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. And then Peter follows it up with saying, honor the king. There has to be inside our language a praise for the offices that God has appointed. It doesn't need to be false, but it does need to be there. Honor to whom honor is due means that God has appointed people in positions and we give honor to the position because God has appointed it. Even if a man is misusing it, we are respectful in how we speak of it. This is important because if all we sound like is a bunch of rabble-rousers who do nothing but complain, we finally, here's what happens. There's a thing called the boy who cried wolf. And after crying something so many times over and over, people grow deaf to it. You and I, when we do need to interject our dissent to our government, need to do so in a timely fashion, carefully, thoughtfully, and not so often that people think we're crying wolf and they finally grow deaf to the cries of those who dissent. Fifth, freedom's present. I believe that because we have been set free in Christ, we have something to offer that no one else has to offer. Remember what God did with Joseph. Remember what God did with Daniel. Remember what God did with Esther. What he did is he gave a person the gift of wisdom and sent them into a political situation, not as a rebel, not as a complainer, but as one who would bring the wisdom of God as a gift, as a present to the situation. The wisdom of God in Joseph saved the entire nation of Egypt, and therefore the nation of Israel. The wisdom of God through Daniel brought about the overthrow of evildoers and the prophecy of the Messiah. The wisdom of God in Esther saved the Jewish line. I believe that if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit abides in you, that the wisdom of God is given to you for purposes of influence in your country, in your city, in your town, in your neighborhood, and the present that Christians ought to bring to every situation is the wisdom of God. Paul gets on to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and says, Is there not a wise man among you in the church who can settle a dispute? That was to their shame. We ought to be dispute settlers 
We ought to be people not who spend our time pointing out what's wrong with everything and everybody, but people who bring the solutions to what is wrong. We need to be presenting as a present to our society the solutions that God has. They may not listen, they may not do it, but we need to be the ones offering it. Rather than complaint, bringing solutions from God's Word. Sixth, freedom's plan. I can tell you from the Mayflower Compact, all the way through history to the origin of the SBC, that God had inside part, not the whole, but part of the DNA of the United States, a missionary mindset. And that missionary mindset came from Jesus. Jesus gave the church a plan. That plan is to be used in freedom, and that plan is to evangelize how many people? How many nations? How many ethnicities? And the church must not use her freedom for her own selfish purpose of building her own local kingdom grandiosely. But taking her resources globally. I want to tell you a fast story. You are one of the most generous peoples I've ever heard. I had a conversation with one of the leaders in the International Mission Board a week and a half ago. And this man was moved by the generosity of this church in global missions. But because of the work that you did in Bua this past year on a water project, I want to tell you what happened last week. Our missionary Gary Wester went into Bua to a new school that we've never been able to contact before. We've never been invited into or welcomed into. He got to the school, one teacher, 43 or 44 students, all ages, from pre-me, I mean preschool up to about eighth grade, all ages. One classroom, one teacher. He showed up there. And he said, hey, we're Gary Wester and Charlotte Wester. We're with the International Mission Board. We're part of the teams that have come and ministered to your community and spoke to the professor there. And she said, well, my school is under the authority of another school down the road, a bigger school. I have to go and ask them. And so they got in the truck and they went down to the other school. And when he got to the other school, there was a man from the government of Ecuador at that school. Now, Mind you, we've been kicked out of the school, one school, by the government before because they didn't want us influencing the children. I'll tell you that story later. But this government official was there. And so when the teacher from the little school came to the principal of the big school and said, these people want to come and teach our children the Bible, the teacher said, or the principal said, I, I like that idea, but the One of the government leaders is here. I need to ask him. And so Gary and Charlotte go, "Uh uh-oh. And so they go to this man who is one of the, like the school board of the whole area. And they told him. And he looked at Gary and he said, are you the guys who put water in Bua? Gary said, yes, sir. He turned to the teachers and to the principal and said, You take advantage of everything they have to offer you. 
that is an open door by your generosity. The gospel now is going to be heard by a new set of children because you invested time, resources, and your own health and strength to put that water system in. And now the big school that runs the little school turns to Gary and said, when can you come to us? Giving us influence over several hundred more students. Willing... The other part of the story is the school who had kicked us out. The parents rebelled against the school board. And I got a letter by email that said this from the school board. Would you come back to our school and reinforce our children's faith in Jesus Christ? That's great! That's what this plan is. Freedom's plan is the gospel. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, that doesn't mean not in an airplane. I am with you always. Even until the end of the age. That's the gospel witness. You shall be my witnesses. Acts 2.8 In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The uttermost parts of the earth. You are doing that. Finally, I close with number seven. Freedom's power. Freedom's power. I want to tell you a mistake we've been making for a couple of decades. You might get a little riled on this, but I just want to say it. I think we've been putting too much, I don't want to say work, because I think we ought to work really hard in this area. And I don't want to say focus, because I think we ought to be focused on this area. But I want to use the word trust. I think we've been putting too much trust on political change to fix our country. God never said that political change will change any nation. God didn't plant politics to change a nation. God planted a church. And so what we are called to do is to use our power. Come with me to Matthew 20, 25 in a very unique way. And we close with this and I commend you to a wonderful 4th of July. And I'll talk to you about our getting to get together tonight. Matthew 20, 25. Here we go. And Jesus was so clear here. Matthew twenty twenty five. Okay. But Jesus called His disciples to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and great men exercise authority over them. I think we've been thinking if we can leverage a certain set of people in Congress, a certain set of people in the Senate, a certain person in the White House, that if we can leverage that, then we can fix the nation. My brothers and sisters, I'm all for godly men and women serving in all government places from right here all the way up to the White House. I am so for that. But we, may, we must never trust in that because that is not God's design for how a nation is changed. He said that's how Gentiles bring about their objectives, through power. He said, no. Look at what he says here. Verse 26. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. 
For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The power of the church is not in her leverage over government, over authority, or over politics. The power of the church is when you bend down like Jesus and you wash the feet of others. And you understand that you are not called to be served, but to serve. And like Jesus, do so even if you give your life to it. If a man in 1944, 5, 6, any time in that age, who was 15 or 16 or 17, thought that freedom was so great a cause that he would lie to get in line to give his life to preserve the freedoms so dear. How much more so should the church be willing to give her life for the freedom of the gospel. Jesus didn't bid men and women to come and live comfortably. He bid them to come and die. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross and follow. As we walk out of this door today as believers, let's leave denying ourselves and bearing our crosses to a world that will never know true freedom unless the Son sets them free. Bow with me. It is possible that you're here today and the freedom I speak of, the spiritual freedom, is not something you're familiar with or that you have, but it's something you've heard of and you desire the forgiveness of your sins, the washing away of your iniquities and your errors and the penalty of your sin, death being taken from you and the life of Christ being offered to you and a shepherd who will love you and keep you and take care of you all the days of your life and bring you to the house of the Lord to dwell forever. If that's what you're looking for, I invite you to Jesus to renounce yourself and to today embrace Jesus and be saved. You say, Pastor Boy, how do I do that? Well, pray with me. You can do that now. God in heaven, I've been a slave to sin. And I'm sorry. I believe Jesus, your son, came to set me free. I believe he lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially in my place as a substitute for me on the cross. I believe he was raised from the dead. And I believe if I trust him, you'll forgive me. And so I follow Him today. Save me, God, and forgive me. Well, the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. And you would never be ashamed. And so if you followed Him today, confess it. 
Share it with us as a staff. Follow him in public baptism. Those of you who are believers, leave here today willing to give like those young men in World War II. A cause so precious that you'd be willing to give your life. Would you do that? Would you stand? And as God stirs your heart, would you come?